happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode 212 for March the 24th, 2021. My name is Wes Fryer. I'm coming to you from Oklahoma City, where I am the Technology Integration and Innovation Specialist at the Cassidy School, which means I get to teach media literacy to fifth and sixth graders and be an instructional coach to our teachers now that I'm not teaching Spanish, which, again, is a reason for Thanksgiving, although it was fun. And joining me, as always, is Dr. Jason Neifer, who has just been on a rather amazing two-week sprint of constant NCCE 21 <laughs> preparation, I think. And from the vantage point that I had of the conference, it appeared to be a, a big, big success. So uh, congratulations, Dr. Neifer, and welcome to episode 212. Thank you very much. Yeah, the uh, conference went extremely well. I mean, there was little hiccups here and there, as 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 you know, happens at any event, virtual or not. But I'm just so proud of the team that I work with there. And um, on the odd chance, the two people that were largely in charge are listening, uh, Gene and Bobby from NCCE, uh, uh, largely do the heavy lifting of that conference, and they were uh, nothing short of utterly amazing. And so it's great to have you there, Wes, and, and uh, we're able to see a couple of sessions. That was uh, sessions I was in. That was super great. And I'm, you know, very excited. Um, uh, well, we've talked about this a couple of times, but, you know, the bottom line is, is that while I can't wait to next year be back in Seattle, and it's my sincere hope that, that we're able to have a face to face conference because it's, it, it's, it's in so many ways a great part of my ed tech community. Um, I also hope that we have more opportunities for virtual events because I've been able to attend some events this year I otherwise would not have been able to afford to go to. I've been part of conversations that I would not have been a part of otherwise. And, you know, my, my, one of my very sincere hopes about the post-pandemic is that we can take all these tools that we've pushed and shoved to become infinitely more functional in the last year and, and do some amazing stuff with them, even though, um, you know, face-to-face -face is, is, is a safer reality. Well, I had the fortunate opportunity last summer to participate in several online conferences um, and several which were exceptional, you know, to include the, the, the uh, Mount Moot and, uh, I thought this conference was was absolutely fantastic. The dynamics, I, I don't. Uh, it was I'm sure partly my fault for for not getting a lot out of my ISTE experience. But ISTE just didn't create the immediacy in the platform that was used. And maybe it was again just like all my fault. But I totally had a different experience at NCCE, much like I had had at the Mountain Moot, much like I had had at this uh, digital. Summer Institute for Digital Literacy, which went all online last year. Uh, it was really, really great. And um, I have still on my Twitter, I need to, I'm going to, I'm going to post the like top 10 takeaways, uh, which I kind of started today, but I have been, you know, using Twitter to document learning and I just kind of have it all in one ginormous thread. And it was um, a good eclectic mix of different sessions and it really had great opportunities for interaction and, I, I mean, I hope I hope we absolutely don't lose this entirely. There's I, I don't think there's any way there isn't that I would have traveled. You know, I don't know if it would have been during our spring break, but it just it would not have been in the cards. I'm I'm pretty confident to go up to NCCE and how cool to get to, you know, just the last day I had I was in that Google um, for instructional coaches and tech. Yeah. And it was fantastic. And I yes. picked up some absolutely great tools and tips and, you know, inspiration to work on that certification and 
Anyway, it was great. And that content is going to be available, I think, through June. Is that correct? When it goes live? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, in fact, that, that, that process was ongoing even this evening and, um, you know, giving even more value to the folks that, that ponied up. And, and I would agree that, um, you know, I, I've been to a lot of conferences this year and, and I think part of it is that when you have a smaller community, it's, 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 it's easier to hold a conference, right? Like when most of the people already have some familiarity with one another, yeah. moving online is that much easier. But I also think, you know, in, you, you take intentional steps to p- make sure people, people feel connected. And, and I think that's something, there's a broader, um, metaphor there, I think, about where technology sometimes fails in that, um, you know, people really, really prefer more direct ways to connect with one another. If technology is in the middle of that, that's fine, but you still have to, you know, bake into it some sort of, of, of interactive humanity. Otherwise, you know, what are you doing? So, well, I will introduce the show, but I want to actually ask you one more follow-up question. And that is sure. having this experience with NCCE, having the mountain mood experience, uh, you know, you, you have, I'm sure you have as much or more you know, online teaching and conference and those sorts of experiences and others would, is there anything that stands out as something you think you've learned, especially in terms of the virtual conference aspect of things uh, beyond what you were just talking about for, for making connections since the, the pandemic and, and really last summer up to today? Well, I mean, I, I would say that um, interactivity is good, right? Like whenever, like, it, you know, you can post a bunch of stuff to YouTube and make it a conference, right? And in fact, there was a, a conference that was close to that. The K-12 online conference for over a decade was an enormously flexible professional learning experience that uh, not only I presented at, uh, but also utilizing context of professional learning in, in, in my school district when I was in the classroom. Um, but if you're looking to do something that's live, you got to create live opportunities to do so. That doesn't happen by accident and it doesn't happen organically. You have to plan that and bake that into things. And I can take zero credit for any of these decisions, but I don't know if you got a chance to see the Thursday night keynote, uh, Wes, with Doc Haskell from Boise State. I did. I was unbelievably gobsmacked by it. And I'm not easily gobsmacked, right? Like, and I, the whole time my jaw is dropped. And, and I think, I don't know if you saw after when I, I popped back on, so I, I helped introduce Doc Haskell that night and then helped close down the session. And I was, like I, I was uh, kind of a little like like Twitter painted about it, right? Like really blown away, and it's it's because the experience that that uh, Doc Haskell is the esports coach uh, at Boise State University and runs. I mean, by 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 his own demonstration, just a really incredible student driven program at Boise State. But um, you know the. He showed us something that he utilized the platform to show us something that he couldn't have shown at a conference otherwise, which was he did a behind the scenes look at a live broadcast over Twitch of an esports competition between Boise State and another team. And you don't get to do that at a regular conference. And so understanding that you can bring people in and have them see something they couldn't otherwise see, I think that's a really interesting way to go about that prospect. And I, I mentioned this too when in, in a couple of uh, uh, chat rooms open with, with other folks that were helping nudge the conference along to say that this was better online than it would have been 
yeah. in a face-to-face environment, right? right? And so I think really thinking about the platforms you're using and playing to their strengths, right, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to, you know, just uh, uh, bemoaning the fact that you can't be face-to-face, you know, everyone, and there's a lot of people that are longtime friends that run around the NCC conference. I think this was my 16th, 17th year in the last 22 years having gone to NCCE, so I know a lot of the folks here, but um, and it's, it's certainly great to see all, all, all of these uh, amazing colleagues, but uh, at the same time, like you can express that we miss one another, but then take advantage of the fact that we could bring in a bunch of East Coast presenters that likely would have not been able to attend. Uh, there are a bunch of teachers there from the Virgin Islands that that have some association with NCCE because of some past training. They've been able to come to some NCCE conferences, but more got to come because they, you know, uh, it was online. And so, you know, there there is there is some real um, uh, uh, opportunities there that I hope we don't ignore when all this kind of pandemic mess is is largely over with. Amen. Well, tonight we will jump into it. We have had a two-week hiatus, uh, had had some uh, plans and hopes to maybe, you know, get some guest speakers and, and things just didn't come through. So, you know, normally we've got a lot of articles to talk about. We could just, you know, there's a lot. A lot has happened in the last three weeks. So, Dr. Neifer, what exactly are we going to get back to doing here on the EdTech Situation <laughs> Well, we take a look at the tech news and kind of shoot it through the prism of technology. Uh, well, of course, it's technology of, of education. So we take a look at how you know, broader trends in technology might impact the classroom. And you can see all the links to uh, everything we talk about at techsr.com slash links. Um, but tonight we've got some security stories. We will talk about our, our regular focus on the so-called tech correction, social media privacy, uh, Microsoft, Google, uh, automotive, which is a, a, a rare category for us. The future of work, also a rare category for us. And then we'll end tonight with our Geeks of the Week, which is just something interesting we found uh, recently that we want to share with our audience. So, Wes, you did the bulk of our links tonight. Where do you think the hotspot is in our um, in our uh, uh, link list? Well, it's probably in the tech correction. Um, I have dropped the uh, published link to our document there into the Google document and want to invite anyone who is joining us live to feel free to chime in with any questions or comments that you might have and we'll try to give those voice um let's let's start out with the tech correction that's our term that jason has utilized to talk about what we're seeing with technology companies and the need for reform and change Uh, let's go back to the verge on march the 12th the headline here is google slams microsoft for trying to break the way the open web works. One of the articles that we talked about a few weeks ago was this settlement, which was eventually reached in Australia to basically keep Australia, you know, using Google still and using Facebook because there were threats that at one time, both of them might completely pull out and uh, money was exchanged. And I don't completely understand how all of it worked, but I think News Corp was one of the main driving factors behind it. And, you know, they, they don't want journalism obviously to die. I don't think anybody does. Speaking of dying, Jason just, I think closed his tab to StreamYard. So I think he'll be back. Um, <laughs> and there he is. He's back, folks. <laughs> Gotta watch those tabs, Dr. Knifer. <laughs> hey, yeah, uh, no kidding. That was weird. Um, you were so, saying, oh, so, yeah. Tools. 
Yeah. So anyway, this article is basically saying that, you know, Microsoft was all happy about this, apparently, you know, publicly and saying, hey, Bing's a great search engine. You know, if Google leaves, you can you can jump right into here. Um, But, you know, Google and Microsoft have a collaboration around the Chromium browser and that Chromium is now the basis for the Edge browser, which has replaced, um, you know, which which has replaced uh, the, the browser on Windows. And so Google basically uh, saw Microsoft's actions as seeking to undermine, um, you know, what it was trying to do in, and, and Microsoft was just supporting Australia's new law and teaming up with European publishers uh, to try to force online platforms to pay news outlets for content. And so this has been settled. I don't know. <laughs> here's, here's a quotation that's kind of, kind of funny. So this is Kent Walker. Google's head of global affairs, quote, it's no coincidence that Microsoft's newfound interest in attacking us comes on the heels of the solar winds attack. And in a moment when they've allowed tens of thousands of their customers to be actively hacked via major Microsoft vulnerabilities, Microsoft was warned about the vulnerabilities in their system. They knew they were being exploited and they're now doing damage control while their customers scramble to pick up the pieces from what has been dubbed the great email robbery. So maybe it's not surprising to see them dusting off the old diversionary Scroogled playbook. And that was a reference to a Microsoft campaign called Scroogled that, um, you know, was was basically trying to throw Google under the bus and, um, you know, fight back. So it's interesting to see that happening. And I personally don't know really where this is uh, other than the fact that money's been exchanged. Facebook and, and Google are still operating in Australia. Have Have you followed this anymore? Would be able to add to that analysis. Not, not any more detail, but I mean, I, I, you know, Microsoft has been a lot friendlier to its competitors uh, uh, in, in the last five or so years. In a, I think, a very clever evolution to try to keep it relevant in 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 the broader uh, technology ecosphere. But make no mistake, they're still competitors with all these other larger. Um, broad tech companies. And even though they are using the, the Chromium browser, it's the base of the Edge browser, uh, the bottom line is at any point they can fork the, the Chrome code and create their own version of it. They'd have to maintain it themselves and they would no longer get updates from the Chromium base. But, you know, it's not, it, it's not quite as, as, uh, Dependent on, on Google than it looks. And I still think that there are probably some fundamental disagreements between really all the major players here, which why I would also include uh, Apple and Facebook on what the future should look like. And in fact, I want all these folks competing in part because I want them to all have a vested interest in making sure the technology works cleanly and openly. Um, but, uh, I, I do think that, uh, you're going to see more of, of this, especially now that the, uh, Congress seems at least interested, if not not able um, to uh, start to, uh, some process of regulation. And I, I didn't understand the article enough to throw it in, in uh, into our links tonight, but apparently uh, Facebook is, is starting to openly suggest to things about how to regulate Facebook in hopes of stopping uh, the federal government from regulating them. Absolutely. And I listen almost, well, every week, at least to one or two episodes, not quite every day, to the uh, the Daily, but I also listen to Today Explained. And I think it's on Today Explained. I've been hearing advertisements by Facebook for regulation, saying the last time, you know, we had comprehensive Internet regulation, I think they were referring perhaps to 96, to the um, Telecommunications Decency Act. Uh, it's been a while. And so, yes, Facebook is actively running ad campaigns, um, I'm sure, to try and shape that 
you know, regulation and not, you know, just have it defined by, by others. Um, I'll pick up two more articles or two more topics here under the same uh, category of tech correction. Uh, this is from Engadget on March 20th. Twitter creates an entity in Turkey <clears throat> to obey a social media law. One of the things that we've talked about with the tech correction, you know, is that you're having these pushes from different countries and different organizations, consumer groups, you know, saying, hey, you know, you got to change. You got to change social media. And one of the things that's happening in some countries, and this is also happening in the United States among certain groups, uh, but in Turkey, you know, is censorship and and saying that, hey, you know, either don't censor us. We, get to, we should be able to say whatever we want or, hey, you you can't allow people to speak freely. Uh, we need to make sure we have, you know, censors in place. There's been some really interesting things that have happened in some countries in the last, you know, month or so with respect to some elections. And, and I think we've talked about some of that in the past, but this is Turkey. And, um, in order to stay legal in the country, um, there's an internet law 5651 that requires larger social media networks over a million users to store residents' data inside the country. Now, this isn't unprecedented because the GDPR, the General Directive on Privacy Regulation from Europe, makes a similar kind of thing. And I think it says you got to store it in the European Union if you're, you know, if users are in the European Union. I know that's affected, for instance, companies like, well, certainly Google, uh, Seesaw, you know, these companies that have lots and lots of teachers and students, you know, creating and sharing content and then hosting that content in the cloud. You know, it's interesting because not, a, you know, small little companies can't necessarily scale up to meet that, that kind of demand. And so I think this is a little bit like, you know, companies that want to stay in China, even when there'd be some terrible things happening with intellectual property theft and, and other things. But, you know, Twitter is wanting to remain relevant. Did we talk before the break, by the way, about that Twitter, the, the talk about paying? Dorsey's article about, you know, pay for tweets and stuff. No, we'll have to pick that one up. I didn't, I don't think I actually got that one in today, but here's a, here. Actually, I didn't put the articles in that were just like Fox news, CNN say Trump is going to create his own platform. Um, I found these articles to be pretty thoughtful in their analysis. There's one from NPR and there's one from the next web. So this is NPR today, March 24th, Trump teases starting his own social media platform. Here's why it'll be tough. And so this one is not quite as strong as the next web. Um, but it's pointing out that, you know, <laughs> it is challenging to successfully compete with big tech. And, you know, even though we certainly saw President Trump, you know, dominate the news cycle, mainly through his use of Twitter, uh, just because he did that in the past is no guarantee that he could just, you know, fire up a social media platform and it would have the same kind of impact. We are not a political show and we're not just going to go down a political, you know, rabbit hole. But I will comment that, boy, since Trump has been off of Twitter, it has been so nice. I mean, I have frequently just thought how how crazy it is that, that and, and the president is an important person. But the way in which just the global, well, I shouldn't say global because we're living in a, you know, United States bubble unless we choose to look at other websites. But our news cycle was just so dominated by whatever he wanted to say, whether you agree with it or not. It was crazy. It was unprecedented in the history of the United States presidency and probably in the history of news cycles. So there's one other article that I'll put in. This one is from the next. Oh, no, sorry. This is from The Verge. And oh, shoot, did I do the wrong one? Yeah, I did. Sorry, I just copied the wrong link. 
That happens sometimes. Um, okay, this is the next web. This is from yesterday on the 23rd, and the title is Why Trump's Social Media Network Will Be an Epic Failure. So you can see a little stronger uh, feeling there in, in the title. But really, really good analysis saying that, you know, you need to be where journalists are if you want to drive the, the, the news narrative. Um, you really can't be an unregulated social media company in the United States, right? You're going to have to censor for violence. You're going to have to censor for pornography and, and terrible, you know, terrible content. Um, and this idea that, you know, because Parler kind of tried that and Parler CEO did. Um, and in fact, I do have one other article in here that, um, ousted CEO Mays sues Parler claims board robbed him of millions. Um, I heard an interview that. The, that Mays, who, or is it, is it not Mays? It's Matsy, sorry. Uh, the former CEO of Parler did with the New York Times podcaster whose name I, is eluding me right now. I know Peggy uh, has listened to her as well. Carla Swisher. Um, Kara Swisher. Is that right? Ah, I'm getting old, man. <laughs> it's Kara Swisher. Yeah. <laughs> is it? Okay. All right. Yeah. It was a, it was an interview before he got fired. And I mean, he was just really, you know, talking about, it was just like the Wild West as far as, yeah, content. We just kind of let, you know, sort of spontaneous panels of users take a look at things to decide whether something's a violation, but pretty much it's all open and you just, you can't do that. And the kind of AI that you would have to have, Facebook and Twitter really struggle with this, right? YouTube does too. And Google, the quantity of content that's created, the scale at which, uh, you know, not only content that just egregiously violates a, a terms of service <clears throat> or community guidelines, but also, uh, you know, disinformation and misinformation. Uh, Clubhouse is having a lot of trouble with that right now. So, you know, this caught headlines over the weekend and people may be going, oh, my gosh. But these are very two very thoughtful articles, I think, that point out why it'd be really tough for anybody to come up with a social media platform because of network effects. I mean, it's multiple reasons, um, but I don't know that we should be, you know, losing sleep over this idea that we're going to have yet another social network that we're all going to have to join. So your thoughts, doctor. Well, I mean, I, it's funny because um, I had heard the news on NPR about the, the, the Trump focused social network and I had not read the article from the next web, but when I had heard that, I was, I, th- I believe I was uh, getting ready in the morning and showering. I was thinking to myself all the reasons why it just makes no sense to start a, 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 another network. And a lot of that is articulated in that next web article, but the, it, it, it not only is it expensive to compete, you have to have a, a, a revenue model, right? And, and to be honest, I don't really know who to believe in regard, regards to former President Trump's finances, right? He's either still very wealthy or maybe not very wealthy. It's hard to say, but I, I doubt he wants to put much personal risk into it to, to create a ginormous hole to pour money into. But that's what he's, he's going to have to do uh, in order to get a sustainable platform unless he wants to start harvesting data for advertising purposes. And, and, and maybe, maybe he has no qualms about that, or maybe that, that, that's not a big deal to him. But, um, you know, if he really wants to compete with Twitter and Facebook and, and, and the variety, I think he's got a long, uh, you know, a long process to go through and look at what happened to Parler, right? Par- Parler was all of the rage by all accounts. They didn't invest a ton of money into development of the platform 
As a reminder, uh, one of the reasons why they ended up uh, shutting down was because they were using a free trial of a piece of security software they were utilizing to help uh, to help garner identity. And the bottom line is is that um, it failed, and now it's 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 of no real uh, it's of no real consequence, right? Like ignoring the fact that it was it turned away from mainstream platforms like uh, you know Amazon Web Services. The bottom line is, is that once they were back up and taking signups again, it, it, it's died. And so you can't, you know, you, you can't buy a platform like that. You can't create a platform economically from scratch and expect it to go anywhere. Um, and I think that article does a really uh, good job of, of, of kind of explaining the tension between uh, anonymous and uncensored because we live in a world of trolls and uh, like it or not, the internet and the open nature of the internet has really provided an extraordinary breeding ground for troll behavior. Uh, uh, not to mention uh, bad actors uh, internationally, um, Russian hacker, Russian hackers, North Korean um, uh, hackers that are looking to sow discord into the United States. I just don't think it makes much sense there. Um, I don't, you know, again, not a political show, but I don't know where we go from here, right? I, I'm not completely unsympathetic to the argument that people that disagree should have a place to go to, to talk it out, right? Um, and that, you know, some mainstream-ish views do end up getting swept into a censorship uh, bubble uh, in a world where we, we have the owners of social media platforms picking winners and losers, right? That That's also not super great either, but we've let an extraordinary beast out of the box and we don't know how to deal with it yet, right? So it's conversations like these between Dr. Fryer and and, and, and me and and you and your neighbors and you and your students and and students and and their parents um, and people that agree and disagree. We have to talk about where to go from here. And um, while I'm interested in the notion that tech is now realizing that we may have to regulate, and so they're going to start suggesting some regulations themselves, you know, a, a lot of smart people create these platforms. I also think that we should be turning some of that brain power on how I would so much rather, you know, take a quiz of, of which cast member of the West Wing I am than, uh, you know, get into these kind of death spiral of political debates on Facebook. So, uh, go ahead. Really good work happening with Ethan Zuckerman and the future of the internet and that podcast. Yep. And just, you know, there's some really good work. Peggy's comment here on the chat is that it's hard to put the toothpaste back in the tube. Yep. That is true. Um, and I'll drop in a link I didn't have in the show notes, but, uh, seditionhunters.org, thinking of Parler and not having very savvy folks who set up your platform. You know, they different people were able to suck off all the content from Parler before it was shut down. And so the Sedition Hunters and the perp sheet, it has all the, the FBI is actively seeking to identify and then arrest people who were involved in the insurrection of the Capitol on January the 6th. And the Sedition Hunters is a uh, open platform to enable folks to share these photographs and identify these people and bring them to justice. And, you know, that's something else that's brought up in that next web article is that at least some of the folks that would probably be participating in a Donald Trump endorsed platform um, to try and continue to push the same uh, narrative of election stolen, et cetera, um, you know, may not be the smartest folks in the world in terms of what they do and what they share. And that the FBI is going to watch that like a hawk. And, you know, these could be some case studies that we actually look at in school in terms of 
sometimes we just want to we we look at figures and say, oh gosh, look at this silly video that this kid you know made back in high school, and now he lost his scholarship. That happens too, but. You know, when when you're documented on social media, when your picture is taken, compare the behavior of the January 6th insurrectionists at the U.S. Capitol to what we've been seeing in Hong Kong, which is still ongoing with students and all the math yeah. understanding of how facial recognition technology works. Anyway, it's a crazy world. And these are things that we need to be talking about. Uh, we need to be talking about with our students, and it is hard. It is so hard to talk politics, and I'm not saying let's all just go talk politics because who knows, we might lose our jobs. Um, hopefully not, <laughs> but we we need to talk about issues that intersect uh, with the idea of media literacy and, and web literacy, with the idea of who we trust, and with the ideas of technology and how we use them because we all have choices about how we use technology we all know that executive function isn't fully formed in the male brain until like 95 or something. I think it's more like 25, but you know, seriously kids um, and just, you know, young people in general, but older people too. We have lots of it, of examples of folks maybe not making great choices with technology and we've got to talk about those things. And so I think that it's sure going to be interesting to see how this era of history gets written into the civics and social studies textbooks, right? Notoriously, we always, you know, kind of save, we're going to even get to Vietnam. I mean, sometimes in, in those courses, you know, we spend so much time in earlier eras. I don't know. That was how it was back in the day. I'm not teaching that course now, but it, it uh, will be interesting to see how this era is, is documented and and the future is being written today right we're trying to figure out these issues how can we continue to have this global internet that allows for really open and and relatively free participation without having these platforms you know hijacked and weaponized uh you know made to serve propaganda you know purposes of of various groups etc these these are all open issues, which Jason Neifer has the answers to. He just <laughs> the answers and teases us with them because, as you can see, he has a very good ivory tower. He's living in there with the virtual background. So you'll hear some of those solutions from time to time, but don't be surprised if it's just sort of a taste here and there. He may not give you the full package in one episode. Well, Wes, let's do that. You want to talk a little bit about uh, that last article about Clubhouse? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, first off, have you participated in, in Clubhouse, Jason? Or do I'm you not, I, because I don't think I have an invite. Oh, well, I would be happy to send you one. Yeah, so, please do. Uh, well, okay, so here's here's interesting things about Clubhouse, and uh, this is a Vice article, so if you're familiar with Vice... Anyway, know that that's that's the source. It doesn't mean it's a bad source, but uh, it can it can be um, you know it, it it can be interesting and contentious. This is an article from February tenth, two thousand twenty one, um, and the subtitle here of the problem with Clubhouse is the increasingly popular social media app is allowing conspiracy theories about COVID nineteen to spread unchecked. Um, you know this is actually true for just about any platform today. Um, you know, because even the even the large platforms, which have a lot of resources, they really have difficulty in moderating content, especially when it comes to things that, you know, are not as readily identifiable as being egregious, but things that may fall into more of a of a disinformation, misinformation category. Um so false claims about the pandemic are being spread in a lot of different places. It's not just about the pandemic. Um 
you know, Clubhouse is, I've read a bunch of articles about it and it really was rolled out kind of like Facebook and this exclusive thing, right? Because like even now you can't just go sign up and join. You have to get an invitation from somebody who is is in in there. And by the way, if you want an invitation, I I think I have like seven or eight and I have, I've participated just a little bit, Uh, but you can send me a direct message if you are interested. Um, It is essentially an open like radio show where some people like Lucy Gray, I know uh, up in Chicago has been experimenting or she was a week or so ago with recording, but generally it's like, this is, this is not recorded. I think they keep it temporarily for a while, but the thing that's most problematic in my mind is the fact that I knowing that you need to be careful when you grant people access to your contacts. Oh yeah, sure. You bet. You know, uploaded all of my thousands of contacts to the app and it has all of our contacts because when you join the app, unless you do it with an account that's not connected to your contacts, that may be actually a good best practice to, to, to keep in mind when you join Jason or, or anybody else. But one of the things that's so appealing about it, if you have notifications on, is you will see people from your contacts popping up when they're in a conversation or they're joining something. And so it's like, I think between TikTok and Clubhouse, which the company providing the backend database and and I think cloud hosting and technology software of Clubhouse is a Shanghai-based company. We're talking some real genius folks that have created platforms that have grown explosively and the quantity of data that they're ingesting, you know, like I said, the contacts of, of all their users, it's just pretty fascinating. So there are issues with Clubhouse. Um, I'm going to continue to dabble with that a little bit. I regret that I joined with my regular account. I wish I had a separate account that wasn't connected to my contacts that I could have used. But alas, in my haste, I just clicked yes. And with that one little click, right. woo, there they go. And there's no bringing them back. I've sent them off to China or wherever they're they're going to be kept and hosted. So your thoughts, sir? Uh, well, um, I I don't think that uh, um, that new platforms are going to fix this uh, in part because there there's no evidence of that, right? Like that that there may be some folks that find clever ways to go about something uh, uh, that 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 changes it you know, for a while, I still think regulation is really the key of this, but I reminded a long time ago of, uh, David Morin was an early Facebook guy. He happens to be a Helena, Montana native, uh, uh, that I knew, uh, when he was growing up, uh, he went to the high school that I taught at, uh, for most of the years of my career. And he created a, I think it was called path was the name of his, uh, a social uh, network. And the idea behind path was that, it limited your number of, of, of connections to a much, 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 much smaller number. And I believe that the, the justification of that was that, um, uh, uh, you, you can't pay attention to the number of people that you're friends with on Facebook, Twitter, whatever, anyways. And I think I'm friends with, you know, 950 people on Facebook. Uh, I have, you know, you know, thousands of, of people I follow and, and follow me on, on, on Twitter. Um, and the same is true of Instagram. And the bottom line is, is that, 
you know, one of the reasons why you see the same people over and over again is the logarithm is telling you, you know, what you're most likely to engage with. But also, you can't pay attention to thousands of people and, and, and keep mind stories along the way. But the point I'm making is that there's some innovation that probably needs to happen here. But I think that Clubhouse is running into the same problems that every other social network runs into as it starts to grow is that you know, there may be a novel way that the channel presents itself. There may be a novel way it connects with others. But the bottom line is, is that it's it. I'm not sure if we're going to be able to design our way out of this. And makes an interesting segue. Uh, Peggy George in our chat room shared a really great uh, article called How to Prepare, Prepare Kids for Social Media Use. And uh, it gives really great um um, really great uh, advice to go over some of the headlines that you need to have the birds and the bees talk, um, but with social media, right? Like to talk about the the limits and 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 talk about you know when things make you uncomfortable that you need to say something and 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 share. Teaching that social media is not private and it's forever. Um, if you're ever in doubt, don't send something out. Uh, be part of the social media experience. Accountability. Communicating with other parents. Uh, but the bottom line is is that you know. 15 years ago, social media was a dirty word in classrooms uh, because of, of the fear of, of social media. It then ultimately took over. Um, and so a lot of people are on social media now that 15 years ago would have said that was dangerous from 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 the outset. Right. Um, seven year old journalist Alexia. Sorry, that's OK. But we're not um, you know, we, we've not. Um, we're, we're still on having those conversations in the way we should uh, in classrooms with kiddos. And I think it's really important that there's always an educational presence. It's not an adult presence. Adults can make mistakes too, but we need to be uh, educational with our friends, family, and particularly our kids. We've talked before about the parent university series that uh, we've done. In fact, at uh, NCCE, there's a great group from, is it Pulliap, Washington? How am I saying? up. Piolup? Piolup. Piolup, Washington. Piolup, like y'all. Piolup. I'm going to have to practice that one offline a few times to get it right. Um, They had a wonderful uh, series when the pandemic happened called Family University Tips and just made them all three minutes or less and just had a lot of success reaching families with different messages about things related to technology and remote learning and the ways in which, uh, you know, folks needed to learn some things quickly and adapt. I, I absolutely continue to believe that we need to be doing more engagement with parents, more opportunities to have conversations because I mean, the web of 2021 is absolutely not the web of 2000 or 2005 or maybe even five years ago. And the things that people tend to have in their minds about like my wife has just been recently talking. She, she tells her third graders the inter- the web is not a safe place for you to just go search. And so they use Kittle and they use some other search engines, but like just we have filters and we have things that are in place and we need, you know, developmentally to help students get to a place, of course, where they're, they're making their, you know, they're making good choices on their own. Um, but it really is challenging and, Engagement with families is essential. So I'm glad for that article, Peggy. Thanks for sharing that. And I'll be passing that along to some others as well. Well, Dr. Neifer, that now that we've exhausted about two minutes <laughs> of our show 
is the end of the tech direction. So could yeah. you please take us to some more traditional technology topics, perhaps? Yeah, let's let's talk us about some nerdy stuff. Otherwise, we might have to change the name of this podcast to the tech correction. Um, so here's some interesting Google news. The Verge reported, I believe it was today, that there is a new uh, photo collection that it pitches to you. I was not able to get it today, although my understanding is that it 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 rolls out. But it basically shows you all the pictures of alcohol that that you've taken and stored in your library. And the reason why I'm mentioning this is not because it's great news uh, that that uh, you know that uh, Google Photos is going to show you about all the booze that you're drinking, but I had an interesting thing happen to me last week on Google Photos. And even though I've moved over to the iOS platform for my mobile device, I still. Think I think Google Photos is the best thing running, and I enjoy it uh, quite a bit. I think it's just a really smart platform um, for saving my photographs. But um, the the logarithmic thinking over at Google Photos actually pitched me a uh, slideshow last week of me and my current dog, Louie. And so it's been able to recognize pets for some time. It obviously recognizes people, but now it's me and my dog, right? So here are pictures of me and my dog, and they were funny photos. Um, I, I, you know, the, if I ever get hit by a bus, uh, 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 and you know, my wife has my cell phone. One thing she'll probably say at my service is that I went into his photos and found three million selfies, many of them with his pets. So uh, that's unfortunately the guy that I am, but. Um, you know, like the, it, it, you know, in, in, in one week's time, I've been told like, here are really cute photos of you and your dog, right? And now here are things that you drink. And so the question I have for you, Dr. Fryer, is that, you know, have we, have we crossed the creepy factor yet with Google Photos or is this really just the advantage of storing your photos in the cloud with kind of an artificial intelligence layer laying on top? I'm I'm still trusting Google and liking the company. This is the key, right? Do you trust this company? And even if you do, hopefully the content that you're sharing with that company, you're okay with it being hacked because it still could be hacked. I don't think so. I might have mentioned on the show before that we've used that same feature in Google Photos to just find all the photos of dogs. So I have an album of like five or 600 pictures with just our golden retrievers through the years. And we lost one of our golden retrievers here a month or so ago. It's just been wonderful to have that up on our Google Chromecast slideshow and reliving these moments and thinking about that. So I don't find that to be creepy. I find it to be awesome. But just like that Sedition Hunters website, that's all using facial recognition, right? And if people who stormed the Capitol didn't realize if you don't have on a mask and things that are going to obscure your face, and even if you do, facial recognition is so good today that, you know, the cards are stacked against you as a criminal and a, and a perpetrator of crimes. I think that's a good thing in that context. But, you know, it's the it's this thing where we're living in a utopia and a dystopia at the same time. So there are some really powerful, excellent uses of these technologies. But at the same time, there's some really um, troublesome and dangerous ones because of intent. What are you going to be intending to do? Right. Take an authoritarian leader and give them. And this is happening in, in Middle Eastern countries and in some other places um, where, you know, a leader is is using their and they have throughout history used their security forces and their police forces, you know, to suppress and oppress the people. But being able to, you know, think about the Uyghurs in Western China, you know, having that lever of of surveillance just ratcheted up as far as it can go. Uh, I mean, that really takes us to to dystopia today. So. 
I, uh, I think it may be a little bit of a jarring thing to be like, oh my gosh, you know, it was able to recognize this. Uh, and that's a sign of, of vast power. But I think, again, these are good conversations to be having with each other and for us to be having with students. How are we going to use these tools? Are we going to be having some appropriate regulations and limits and boundaries to try and stay on the rails? Uh, or are we not? And, you know, where where would that take us if if we didn't you know have have some boundaries on the use of these things? Yep, absolutely. And you know, and I will say that, and I, that's the same with me too. I feel like I I still trust Google, uh, even though there's been some evidence that maybe I should question that. But that's kind of where I'm at too. Okay. Uh, Nine to five. Google reported today that Lenovo is is uh, launching four new Chromebooks aimed at the education sector. Um, it, it does talk about four different interesting form factors. They are clearly aimed at the education market because they're uh, rugged. Um, the only thing I would note, and and I, I I I keep kind of preaching this one because I think it's really important. The only thing that I disliked about this is that it's low resolution screens. Um, the that you can buy up to eight gigs of RAM, but in most cases, it's either limited to four with these models, or uh, it's a lot more expensive to get the extra RAM. Um, and uh, I did look up, they're using the new Intel Celeron N5100 chip, and I will say that the N5100 chip is not benchmarked yet, so I was not able to determine if um, uh, I think that's a new chip that that has, has only recently been released, so I couldn't find any benchmark data on that, but my thought was is that likely it's going to be a slow chip. And one of the things that I just feel like I need to stay consistent on message about, because I think it's so important, we have to find a way to get middle ground spec devices into kids' hands. And then a secondary concern, but still just as important, I think, is into teachers' hands. And Chrome OS is turning into such an extraordinary uh, operating system that, that in the last 18 months has taken on a lot of the advanced function that you would find only in Windows and, and, and Mac OS. But we're not going to get there if we keep low-balling specs um, uh, on these devices. And I get that a $179 device is much more attractive than a $379 device. I get that part, but there's a middle ground there somewhere, um, and it's, we're not going to get to it if we keep low-balling the specs on Chrome devices. Agreed. Um and I would say, order your Chromebooks now. If you're in school, if you yes. are uh, in any way connected to those making decisions about technology, um, our school has decided to go full Chromebook. And um, I don't know. I think if those orders weren't placed this last week over spring break, they're going to be going in really soon. And you need to get your orders in because we saw lots of backlogs over the break uh, or sorry, over the, you know, in in emergency remote learning and throughout the pandemic, we've just seen huge surges in in tech orders. And, you know, it's good to see these new. Here's the question I have for you and anyone else out there. Have you been amazed by a stylus experience on a touchscreen Chromebook? Because that would be wonderful. And I have not heard or experienced that myself. Like I'm um, talking an Apple Pencil quality, like, oh, my gosh, this is so good. Yeah, um, I will say that the pen that came with, and because I, I want to show you this, give me one second. I'll just grab my bag back here. How many different, how many, oh, wait, wait, 
and how many different screens were you choosing from, Doctor? Uh, yeah, at, uh, at, at, at the ready, he 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 usually keeps you know a good complement of at least ten different devices. That I will not comment. Uh, but have you ever uh, seen the Matrix where they have so many guns? Like this is Jason Neifer with keyboards and screens, ladies. Yes, it's true. It's very true. Um, <laughs> there's two pens I've been really happy with. Um, on the Pixelbook and then um the the slate from Google and um I will tell you that um I'm not I'm not really happy with Chrome OS as a tablet experience yet. It's getting there, but Android apps apps are so wonky it doesn't make much of a difference. But so the two pens that I, I, I use on, on Chrome OS devices, and these are not part of the new style of of, of a stylus, which I think are called USI. There's really great coverage on USI Stylus over on ChromeUnbox.com because they, they've been really following that trend. But this is the Lenovo, um, it's the standard higher end stylus, uh, that they sell, which was infinitely cheaper than the alternatives, uh, uh when I bought the, the, the Pixelbook a couple years back. And then on a, a, a Black Friday deal, I picked up, uh, the Google, uh, Pixel Pen that, that, that went along with the Pixelbook and both are really high quality experiences. Uh, the software keeps getting better. It's just not as great as it is on an iPad. Although I will say I've never used an Apple pencil yet. And I imagine that you have Dr. Fryer. And, um, I, 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 my understanding is that's a, that's a good experience, especially if you're a drawer. It's amazing. Yeah. I mean, just being able to lay your hand down and not worry about any stray marks at all and having the pressure sensitive. Yeah. I've used both the, the Apple pencil one and the, the two and phenomenal. So. Okay, well that's good. Maybe we can drop that link into the show notes and I might, uh, might put that in. I think we're, we're gonna have a touch sensitive or a touch, uh, Chromebook that we're gonna have next year. We're hoping to, you know, run Minecraft successfully and it'd sure be great, you know, if we had some, some touch capabilities there. Um, anything else in the Google world that you wanted to, to touch on? Uh, yeah, let me very quickly say two other pieces. Uh, this is a follow-up to, it's something we've talked about, I think two or three times on the podcast. Google is developing a mysterious operating system that's called Fuchsia. It seems kind of like a mix of Chrome OS and Android. It's installable on the Pixelbook and I, th- I think also the Pixel Slate. Um, they're now starting to do their uh, 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 developer release, which means it'll be openly downloadable and easily installed on uh, what I would assume are a variety of devices. We still don't know what Fuchsia is for. A lot of people think it may be the uh, uh, successor to Chrome OS or the mayor of Android and Chrome OS so that the operating system would take over on both platforms, which I think is a very interesting prospect uh, uh, from the standpoint of kind of building something from scratch. But that's an interesting development. And then for those of you that use Google Chat, so the the uh, that's kind of the Slack uh, alternative that is on Workplace. Um, that if you're doing that as part of your Google, uh, workplace for education at work, or I use it as part of the context of my, um, uh, tool set at the Digital Academy, uh, they're adding some granular notification controls and they're making that platform a lot more functional. And day by day, by, day by day by day, it's becoming more of a Slack competitor. And you're muted, sir. Isn't it wonderful to feels like a complete goof in front of other people? Um, <laughs> so we've got about 10 minutes left. Uh, maybe we can try and pick up a few, uh, articles, uh, as we, as we wrap up. Here's a couple under the security headline. Um, and this is just kind of a, you know, crazy shake your head, but hey, it really happened. Um, man loses $560,000 
and Bitcoin scam from fake Elon Musk account. All right. Uh, we have a word for this. It is called social engineering. It can also be called phishing. When someone is looking for your credentials with a hook, trying to get you, can you put them in? Can you log in? Uh, or will you, you know, will you send money? And there's the jokes about the Nigerian, you know, king or whatever, you know, sending email. Unfortunately, those things work. People do respond. And so this is a, you know, pretty egregious case. Uh, this guy thought that he was going to, um, he was, he was going to cash in on a bunch of bitcoins, I guess, that Elon was going to be sharing with him or something. Um, this is a very positive article that you can share, especially with students who might want to enter into what has been called the like war that is occurring right now globally, inf- information cyber war. This is the BBC from March 10th. COVID white hat bounty hackers become millionaires. Hackers earned a record 40 million dollars, 28 million pounds in 2020 for reporting software flaws via a leading bug bounty reporting service. And that's just one uh, service. And so there's pictures of these bug bounties. There's a, a lecturer from the UK who's a bounty hunter in her spare time um, who has earned about uh, 12,000 pounds in the last year, she said. And, um, you know, it's so interesting because Governments and security agencies <laughs> uh, have an interest in not getting software patched and fixed and having these things called zero days hoarded so that they're able to exploit them and spy on you know people and organizations and, and gather intelligence. But the difficulty with that is that when those zero days and these unpatched vulnerabilities are out there, nobody knows how many folks they're being utilized by, and they're not just being utilized by scrupulous you know, intelligence services, they're being made, you know, used by cyber criminals as well. So uh, we do need to encourage more young people to go into uh, cyber and uh, both, both cyber offense and cyber defense. Uh, it's just, it's huge. It's gigantic. And I think a lot of us are really asleep to how incredibly hostile the computing environment is and is going to continue to get. The trend here is not like, oh, well, in two years, it's going to get really peaceful and we're all going to start to get along. This is not what's happening. It's just getting more and more hostile, more and more difficult. Um, and then the last article here is from the MIT Technology Review on March 10th, how China's attack on Microsoft escalated into a reckless hacking spree. And so there's a contrast here between the Solar Winds hack, which we've talked about on the show a bit, which was a intelligence services tell us Russian propagated very specific like spear phishing type, you know, attack um, not only against U.S. companies and, and international companies, but also against U.S. government entities like the Department of State, the Department of Energy, the Department of Commerce, some really significant entities. But this exchange server hack, which was Chinese uh, in, in origin, was really rampant. And basically it sounded like these folks were installing almost as many back doors as they possibly could in as many systems and the speed and the the velocity with which this, you know, went around the world and the devastating consequences of, Oh, your, your entire exchange server is compromised, you know, and, and they're, they're inside your network. And Oh my gosh, makes me happy. I'm not a tech director responsible for all that. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, um, I think I mentioned this uh, with that uh, HBO's uh, uh, 
episode of, of Axios that uh, I still have queued up and I need to watch. But I mean, the bottom line is, is that if you're vulnerable, you're going to get attacked. So is that the perfect weapon documentary by Peter Singer? Or are you talking about something else? I is think it, it is. Maybe it is the perfect weapon one. Yeah. But yeah, you know, just the bottom line is, is that, you know, a future wars uh, and, and, and not, not war in a broad philosophical metaphorical sense, like, uh, you know, countries attacking one another. One of the ways we're going to get thrown into that is, is, is via cyber attacks. War, war today. Um, I, another Kara Swisher podcast I listened to this weekend was with the general who's in charge of U.S. Space Command, which of course has taken all these jokes and there's this whole comedy series about it. But like the way that we rely on space and therefore cyber is absolutely huge every yep. single day. And, uh, I'll be actually giving a TED talk related to that tomorrow. Uh, in terms of, you know, protecting ourselves and, and families. Um, you want to talk about the future of work, Dr. Neifert? You put a couple articles there. Yeah, two notes here um, that, uh, you know, obviously the the end of the pandemic seems like it's at least in our sights, uh, maybe a little further, maybe a little closer, depending on on your personal circumstances. But Microsoft has announced that they will start reopening their headquarters, uh, worldwide headquarters, really. Uh, they are talking about, in this particular case, uh, the campuses in, in in Western Washington. But obviously, you know, that they're they're talking worldwide as well. And uh, as it turns out, like estimated, a lot of big tech companies, well, really a lot of Fortune 500 companies, when they say they're reopening offices back up, that doesn't mean it's going to look the same as it did at the beginning of March 2020. And in fact, remote work and finding ways to get people to collaborate, even if they're not in the same space, will likely continue uh, for, for the longest of times. And so, um, you know, schools are starting to plan for the fall. I've been part of at least two dozen discussions now where people are trying to figure out where things go next. I don't want to say that things won't go back to normal because I do think there will be some normalcy at some point that will feel both familiar and comfortable and, and, and really secure for us. But I would just encourage people to think about, are there ways that we can build infrastructures in place to serve all students and their needs, even if it's not in your face-to-face -face environment? And I get that a lot of people, you know, don't want to be part of that because, it hasn't been a universally great experience, but I think a couple of weeks ago was, uh, NPR was quoting the Pew, uh, uh, internet survey, internet life survey saying that one out of three parents thought that they would want to continue to find some, some way to have a technology driven or distance learning platform for their kid, even after the pandemic was over with. Cause I do think there are a lot of student circumstances that, uh, 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 really do need something more flexible than a face to face environment can, can sometimes force. Two more fast, and I think we're going to have to geek of the week it. Uh, privacy, the next web today. Amazon is asking drivers to sign a biometric consent form or lose their jobs. So we talk a little bit about dystopia and where is, you know, the surveillance state and surveillance capitalism taking us. And this will apparently identify every time a driver yawns as well as you know, does anything else. So thinking about that level of scrutiny, you know, over your life, um, Amazon obviously thrives on scale. And I've listened to some interviews of folks who have organized this union that's trying to take shape, try to support, you know, workers in, in Amazon distribution centers, uh, the ways in which they're tracked, but that doesn't, that doesn't sound fantastic. Um, and then the last one, because we, we mentioned this topic, and I don't think we've ever had this as a topic under automotive. Uh, this is from The Mobilist on March 19th. With a blockbuster week, Volkswagen has ignited a new phase in the electric war. And it is 
this is a pretty exciting article. Um, we all know Tesla has been doing a lot and there's, there's a lot of promise for electric vehicles, but seeing mainstream automakers move wholesale into the electric vehicle market and then the technologies. The thing about this article is they talk about, I think, magnesium and the rare earth metals that have been typically used in like lithium, you know, batteries and there's other, you know, metals and chemicals there. But uh, exciting new technologies and chemistry that has a lot of promise to accelerate a transition to an electric vehicle uh, landscape in uh, the United States. So, Dr. Neifer, have you placed your order for the Tesla Model 3 or are you holding out uh, for the X or what's the status uh, there? I want an electric car really badly, but... Uh, I, I, I had to buy a car. This was when I was still commuting from, from, um, Helena, Missoula. I had to buy a new car in 2015. I think it's going to be my last gas powered car, right? Uh, so, you know, and I, and I don't, I, I'm not, I don't flip cars, uh, often. I'll, I'll drive the wheels off that Ford, but I'm hoping that, uh, um, I'm hoping that it's my last gas-powered car. There's so much exciting technology going on, and I like that there's competition here, okay. right? Like, you know, 10 years ago, there were electric cars, but, you know, they were seen pretty niche and not providing a lot of uh, a competition there. But the more players here, the better off we are. Maybe it'll be a Volkswagen. Who knows? Yeah. Well, do you have a Geek of the Week for us today, sir? I do. So, uh, you know, one of the things that was lost when 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 Apple started um, messing around a little bit with the form factor of their laptops was a so-called MagSafe charger. And uh, if you know what the MagSafe charger is, uh, you know how amazing it is. And it's basically a charger that holds into the laptop platform via a magnet. So if someone trips over the cord... Um, you know, to your laptop because it's plugged in in a, in a precarious location, then it just, you know, gently lifts off uh, the laptop and your laptop doesn't get thrown across the room as has happened to me a number of times. Um, and USB-C doesn't have that feature. In fact, it's, it's pretty snugly, you know, uh, put into the, 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 the a charging port inside the laptop. Well, a couple of years ago, I, I saw this device, but the early prototypes of it and the ones that were sale initially were, were pretty terrible. But this is essentially a Meg safe adapter for USB-C. And so all you need to do is stick, um, this into the USB-C port. Um, and then you put the other end of it on your USB-C charger, or I'm sorry, cable, and then all you need to do then is, is it holds together with a magnet, and the same thing happens. If someone trips over your cord, it just pops right off, and it holds and charges through that, but it also pops right off. It's 17 bucks on on Amazon, um, at least it was when I bought it. Uh, it's worth every dime. I now own two of these. It works on phones. It works on laptops. And, uh, it's actually, uh, uh, you know, my, my, my MacBook M1, uh, this is what I use to charge my, my MacBook. So it's a pretty great little gadget. Super, super cool. Um, well, mine is my geek of the week, um, is actually a video series that I just, I, maybe I'd heard about this before, but again, back to NCCE, learned about it. It is from MediaWise, uh, which is a wonderful, wonderful media literacy organization. And it's a whole series called is this legit? There's uh, 19 videos in their uh, playlist right now. And it is uh, teenagers, uh, young people who are helping with web literacy. And they are, 
you know, in many cases, debunking things that are being spread virally on social media, but they're doing such an excellent job and they're teaching media literacy. Um, I'm actually sharing one of their videos with my students this week and super, super excited to find that resource. So I've taken us just a couple of minutes off or beyond the top of the hour. Dr. Neifer, where can people find you when you are not here on Wednesday night on the EdTech Situation Room? I am on Twitter at Tech Savvy Teach, uh, and you can find out more about me and maybe bringing me into your school and district at www.nifer.com. And you, sir. Awesome. I am W. Fryer on Twitter, and I am sharing in various places that I have collected together on westfriar.com slash after. That would be like after the talk or after you encounter Wes, including some pretty... Uh, Pretty fun food stuff. You know, we just had spring break. So we've been, we've been cooking up some meat here lately. So we want to thank everybody for tuning in live and for contributing to our conversations here. We are here generally on Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Mountain, whatever that translates in your neck of the woods. But you can always find us at edtechsr.com. You can follow us on Twitter at edtechsr. You can also subscribe to us on YouTube, but on the edtechsr.com website, we have the small six, no, 32 kilobit MP3 audio files to download, as well as our smaller video formats. If you want to see our scary mugs uh, and not just listen to us, but you probably want to get the show notes and all those can be found there. So until next time, we encourage everybody to stay savvy and stay safe. And we will see you next time for another episode of the EdTech Situation Room. Good night. <laughs>